Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 29th episode of the Trojan Venture Podcast. I hope everybody had a really good weekend and are excited for a new episode. So today we're going to be exploring a space that I don't think we've covered that much throughout this podcast series, and that's the supply chain and logistics area. Obviously, both supply chain and logistics are huge industries with large downstream effects for a lot of other industries we've covered throughout this series. But today we're going to speak with a thought leader within this space and really hear about his background, both professionally and personally. So on today's episode, I have the pleasure to welcome Will O'Donnell. Will is the founder and managing director of Prologis Ventures, the venture arm of Prologis, which is the global leader in industrial real estate and supply chain logistics. Since its founding in 2016, Prologis Ventures has invested in over 40 companies within industries like prop tech, supply chain, mobility, and energy infrastructure. Will attended Duke University, where he actually played on Duke's golf team, eventually graduating in 1998 with English and Spanish degrees. After five years spent between consulting and digital marketing, Will joined Prologis in 2003 as a senior vice president of global deployment. After eight years in that role, Will spent four years as a senior vice president of fund management and strategic initiatives for eventually founding Prologis Ventures in 2016. Will is also a board member of Platform Science, an enterprise-grade IoT fleet management platform, and FreightWaves, both freight market analytics tool and dashboard. So obviously, Will has a rich background of experience at one of, or not the leading real estate company in the world. So really excited to hear about his perspectives on the current state of both the supply chain and logistics sector and how Prologis Ventures is contributing to that ecosystem. Hey, Will, thanks for coming on the show. My pleasure. It's great to be here, Eric. Really excited to talk today all about your time at Prologis, your background, both professionally and personally, but want to start with your collegiate experience, specifically that you played collegiate golf at Duke. So how do you think that experience has helped you in the business world? Uh, it's a good question. I mean, I, I think um, a couple aspects of it. One, early on, just being able to balance playing collegiate athletics with academics and social and everything else that taught me, taught me time management and discipline. And just having to put the effort in over time to be able to get to that level teaches you, I think, some good personal life lessons on on how to drive results. Um, I think, secondly, golf for a business world is a pretty good sport because uh, there's very few things where I can call up someone and say, hey, do you want to go spend five hours with me? And people drop their meetings and reschedule things to do that. And golf is one of those opportunities. Uh, so I've been able to get to know a lot of people and make good relationships, just being able to spend time with people in a business environment on a golf course where you're both getting to know them as a person, but then also uh, obviously can discuss and conduct business. So for me, it's been a, 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 a sport that's opened up a lot of opportunities in networking and just getting to know people. And you started at Prologis in 2003 as a senior mm -hmm. vice president. Could you tell me a little bit about how you got introduced to Prologis in the first place? And then from there, you have had a lot of experience in international markets. So if you could tell mm -hmm. me about your exposure there and how your experience has grown. Yeah, good question. So I had um, it was probably five years out of working. So out of 
college, I went and worked at a consult as a consultant for about a year and a half, and then moved to San Francisco and joined uh, one of the first digital marketing companies uh, during the dot-com era. So was there before the company went public, it went public, and then the dot-com crash happened. So ended up spending a lot of time focused on workouts and trying to uh, identify how we could shift the, the customer base of the company and, and refocus the efforts to help scale and grow it. And uh, it's actually still a company today. It got bought by Axiom. It's been very successful. But around that time, I decided I wanted to get into real estate. And I had a couple of friends who were in the space, et cetera. Uh, so I just started interviewing around and, and knew someone who was at AMD at the time, uh, which became Prologis. And was lucky enough to be hired to be a first analyst in, in Mexico. So doing acquisitions and helping really scale our Mexico platform. Um, at that point, AMB was just starting to expand internationally. I think we had bought our first building in Mexico or bought our first piece of land. We're building our building, uh, starting to look at Europe, uh, but really trying to figure out what we needed to grow and, and build the company beyond just the, the US borders as which it had previously been. Um, so over the next 2003 to 2008, 2009, worked on Mexico, but also had the opportunity to open up uh, China, India, and South Korea for the company. And it was interesting because it was all about not just um, how to make real estate investments, but entering into a company, how do you hire a team, how do you put the right pieces in place, how do you decide if you're going to enter in that, that, that country what markets in that country, how do you do business there? How does that compare against the US and best practices we had? So for me, it was a really exciting opportunity to just be able to be exposed to completely new markets, completely new cultures and figure out how we could set up uh, investment platforms for A and B. And from your experience, how did the real estate markets from let's say, Mexico to more of an Asian market differ, at least from your work there? Yeah, I, I mean, there's always complexity around tax code, uh, regulatory government approvals, uh, cultural best practices. So one of the things that we tried to do was isolate out the variables that we could control, the variables were similar. So when we move into a new market, we invest and buy logistics real estate. So, okay, let's focus on buying logistics real estate next to major airports um, because you can't mess that much up that much. The airports aren't going in a way and the land's going to be more valuable 10 years from now than it is today. Um, we also had really good expertise in our customer base and what type of product they wanted. So as much as possible, we try to transfer best practices and building design etc to a local market on so what is the international standard warehouse going to be now there were some nuances and differences in each market that we had adapt for but we by really focusing on things that we knew uh we were then able to spend more time on the things that we didn't know so how do you bring money in and out of china how do you set up entities from a tax code structure how do you get the right government approvals how do you go contract with with construction companies to build buildings um so it was a, a fascinating experience because there were so many different things that you had to learn uh but again rather than spending three years trying to study everything it was like okay well let's get a base understanding we'll go buy some land next to an airport 
and we'll learn as we go and, and figure out how do we both do this and ensure this is where we want to invest, but two, then how do we put the right pieces in place to scale the business beyond the first couple buildings? Yeah, no, that, that makes a ton of sense. And obviously, since you've been there now 20 years, a lot of things have changed, specifically in the yeah. supply chain space. There's been a ton of automation, technological innovation. How has the space changed for you since you started there? You know, what trends have you seen in the last couple of years that have kind of been driving that? Yeah, I, I think there's a couple major trends. One, and part of the reason why we expanded globally was globalization was occurring. So in the two, early 2000s, um, the world really became global and you were looking beyond your borders and people's supply chains became much more complex and global. Um, secondly, the emergence of e-commerce. So um, we now buy a significant amount of our goods online. And one of the things when we looked at the data for a retail network of about a billion dollars in, in, in revenues, you need about 300,000 square feet of warehouse space in a traditional retail network because a lot of the inventory is going to back of stores, et cetera. But if you move to e-commerce, that quickly shifts to about 1.2 to 1.4 million square feet of warehouse space is needed to service a billion dollars in e-commerce sales. So for our perspective, it was a really huge tailwind for our, our space. Secondly, if you're moving to a same day next day, uh, proximity to consumption becomes even more paramount. So virtually before, okay, we could have one or two warehouses cover the entire United States on three to five day delivery. Uh, suddenly, if you're moving the same day next day, you need to have warehouses proximate to cons consumption. With that, data analytics and, and data science and predictive measurements become more and more important because I need to make sure I have the right inventory at the right place at the right time. Um, and then all these different nodes within supply chain and logistics needed to work better. So things coming off the ships and the ports, then they need to get into drainage vehicles, go to transshipment warehouses, be sorted. And you have all these independent entities managing different components of it. What we found is, is through e-commerce and the push on customer uh, consumer ex expectations, it put more and more pressure on these differences on supply chain to start working together. Um, the third thing, or maybe on the fourth thing now, I don't remember which, but another area was for a long time, just in demand um, was a big part of supply chain. And it made sense where if I'm manufacturing a computer, I have all these different components for inventory. And people got it down to the science to know exactly what inventory they needed to get in time to manufacture something. But what we saw during the pandemic is so, uh, supply chains break occasionally. And, and suddenly a pandemic came that no one had put in their PowerPoint presentations in Excel, and it completely upended the market. But you also have natural disasters, whether they're flooding or hurricane. A boat a couple of years ago got stuck in the Suez Canal. You're having drought issues in Panama right now that's affecting the canal there. Um, so what people suddenly realized is supply chain is it, 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 historically viewed as a cost center, but is now really viewed at a sea level as mission critical. Because one, if you don't have the right supplies coming in and enough of them, your manufacturing stops. 
two, from a consumption basis, if you're not able to put the right product on the shelves or in an e-commerce website at a given time, consumers can shift somewhere else. So people began to focus much more on the strategic nature of both procuring product for manufacturing, but to making sure the inventory is in the right place at the right time in order to meet consumer expectations. So I, I would say in the last five, six years, the combination of COVID, e-commerce, the political tensions, globalization, everything, that supply chain has become more and more of a focal point across our customer base. Um, secondly, the net zero commitments that companies are making are a big impact. So within a retailer, um, even though supply chain costs may be 5% of their, their revenues, 95% of their emissions come from the supply chain or the carbon the carbon emission comes from the supply chain. So it's becoming increasingly a focus on how do we optimize the supply chain for net zero commitments that companies are making. So that's an area that we in particular have been spending a lot of time and it's important to us, but within the last three or four or five years, uh, it's become even more of a focus and importance for our customers. And so let's talk a little bit about Prologis Venture Vehicle, which both yeah. And now run. I'd love to hear about what what was the need that you thought Prologis had for a venture arm, and then why did you think you were the person most qualified or best able to be able to run it? So I, I think the need, and we started it uh, almost exactly eight years ago, um, and it was interesting at that time. Um, people were just starting to think about data. Um, you could. Really, uh, real estate had been an industry that historically hadn't thought or worried about disruption. Uh, because if I can own an 80 year old business uh, building in downtown New York, I collect rent. And it was all about location, location, location. And it was a pretty straightforward business where you negotiate a lease, customers come in for five years to kind of ignore that customer until you need a renewal. Um, but we started at that time seeing some disruption starting to occur, whether it was we were changing the concept of tenancy on the office side, Airbnb and their business model was impacting hospitality. We were a huge beneficiary of e-commerce because of some of the data that I was mentioning, but we also realized that our customers' underlying business models were changing so rapidly that we really needed to stay ahead of it. And real estate is a great passive long-term income product, but if you happen to own the real estate at the wrong spot as market shift or business models evolve, it's a very tough thing to recover from. So a lot of the thought process at the time was we're sitting here in Silicon Valley where we're headquartered here in San Francisco, and there's all this change and disruption and technology happening around us. Just because our industry doesn't view it right now as competitive or a, a differentiator, that doesn't mean it isn't. And how do we go study what other companies are doing, what other industries are doing, what best in class as a company looks like, not a real estate company, but best in class as a company, and take that back to us and really figure out how we can change and disrupt our industry and change the, the, like, the premise of how we do business. So... I think over time, uh, first two years, we didn't actually talk publicly about the fact that we had a ventures group uh, because it was just from a Wall Street analyst side, 
real estate companies focused on real estate. Like that's what you did. And you collect rent and you pay out dividends. And we didn't want to confuse the message until we had built the master out and showed, you know what, there is value in understanding supply chain and logistics. There's value in partnering with our customers. And a couple of the byproducts that came out of it were the ability for us to connect with our customers in new ways. That historically our contact had been the director of real estate. Um, and we had wanted to get in front of more C-level executives, but what rent they were paying wasn't necessarily at times their highest priority. But when our group started looking at robotics or data analytics, that was what was keeping the global head of supply chain up at night, or that was what was keeping the COO or the CEO up at night. So we were as a company suddenly able to engage with our customers in new ways. And it's allowed us to think differently about our business model. So we've launched as a company, something called Prologis Essentials, which has energy and mobility and, and operating components to it. And by that, we're now the second largest operator of rooftop solar in the world, providing renewable energy to our customers and our surrounding communities. And only 4% of our roofs are covered. Um, we're starting to do EV utility scale storage. Uh, we're putting in EV charging infrastructure as our customers are shifting from diesel trucks to net zero, the infrastructure to charge that isn't there. Um, we're looking at when customers move into the warehouses, how do we provide them the racking, the forklifts, the IT infrastructure, all the picks and shovels that they need to operate in a turnkey solution. Um, how do we think about with data analytics, how we can create proprietary data sets that add value to our customers and allow them to better think and, and operate their businesses. So it was one of those that, as I mentioned earlier, when the real estate, it was a, it's an odd industry and you spend five months or three months negotiating a lease with a customer and then try to ignore that customer for the next five years. Every other industry, it'd be like, okay, I have a captive partner. How do I understand their business better and bring them more value and more solutions? And that's something that the company as a whole has really shifted our overall strategy to do to move beyond just charging rent to really be a holistic solution for the infrastructure. And the ventures just plays a part in that looking outside the company and understanding, okay, here's where change is occurring. Here's disruptive technology that could impact our customers. Here's what other industries are doing or approaching some more things that we can come back and be a better company for. And how does the venture arm, how are you guys leveraging Prologis' brand and overall infrastructure to kind of add mm -hmm. that from an investor angle? Yeah, so Prologis owns about 1.2 billion square feet of logistics facilities in 20 different countries. We have, say, 7,000 different customers. Um, we're also, when we look at supply chain logistics, we're an interesting party because we really own a lot of the underlying skeleton underneath. So while we own a lot of the spokes and hubs, and because of that, we're not competitive with our customers and their business, but we're providing them a valuable infrastructure resource. But one of the things that we're empowered and able to do is connect the dots across our customer base. So we can see here's a pain point that 15 different customers are having. Here's a pain point that's occurring in the retail sector that actually also is a pain point in the 3PL or the third-party logistics sector. Can we address it? Can we attack it? So I think from our 
perspective, Prologis just has such a unique platform and insight because of the physical infrastructure. And we have people all day long walking our sites, talking to our customers, understanding where their pain points are. And as we've continued to listen to our customers and be able to capture that information into actionable insights, it allows us as a company to be more responsive and understand here's a solution that we could potentially provide. When we're out looking from, for technology, we write very clear thesis about here's the opportunity or here's the pain point in supply chain logistics, and then try to go find out the best business model or technology to solve it. So it allows us a little bit of move away from, okay, here's the new hottest technology, whether it's web 3.0, blockchain, now AI, like these are all great technologies and they have their purpose, but really understanding how they could be applied to solve a very specific business process um, is I think what we've been able to do successfully on the venture side, but it's also what Prologis and then our customers find valuable because it's coming back with true solutions for a pain point that's been identified. And from an ecosystem around it, we've been able to really leverage that knowledge, our relationships with customers, our understanding of space, and partner with startups to really help them focus on what's important, where change is needed. And you guys invest from series A to growth stage. How, which is obviously a, a kind of a wide range, um, kind of a different, mm -hmm. how does your assistance as an investor change from investing at a series A stage to more of a growth stage? Yeah, it, it's, well, change too. I mean, it, it, one of the things that we do look at is if a, cost, a, a company has product market fit and is actually solving real pain points. And it's part of the reason why we, we, we've done seed occasionally, but we generally don't. Because at that point, companies are really trying to figure out what the product is. What we're able to do is once a product has fit and customer base, help that customer think about how does it evolve, where the needs are, what their pipeline should look like, and, and um, also help them scale their businesses. And there is a difference in maturity, as you noted, between a Series A and a growth stage. But again, our value proposition is really a deep understanding of the space and customer needs, whether it's Prologis as a customer or our customers and helping translate that for companies to be able to best attack. Um, so Willie will, the way we've looked at it is once we have a pain point, sometimes it's an earlier stage company that has a clear differentiation. It can solve that pain point. Other times there might be four or five companies all trying to attack it. Well, let's wait for a later, a little bit later until we can identify who's differentiated is really going to be the leader and then put our effort behind that one. And usually how capital intensive are these businesses that you guys are investing in? Are they usually asset heavy, which would lead to, you know, the need for debt investment as well? Or are they, are you focused more on companies that are really just doing technology behind it? Yeah, I would say it's generally technology or then sometimes you get into some asset heavy businesses where, especially if you're looking at, we have a uh, investment in solar recycling company, for example. So they're taking solar panels and recycling, but they have to build plants to do that. So that is a more asset intensive business than someone who's just doing software alone. Um, I would say we, we have not invested in a lot of businesses that are 
asset heavy in the way logistics companies are uh, in that, okay, our company owns uh, 6,000, 7,000 warehouses. That's a pretty asset heavy business. I mean, that is our business, right? There's other companies that own hundreds of thousands of, uh, hundreds of, thousands of trucks, a UPS or a FedEx. Those are very asset heavy businesses. Um, where we've looked at sometimes when you get into the physical environment of moving atoms, um, you need to have a combination of both hardware, but then technology enabled hardware to digitize it and provide a differentiation. In that example, we've invested in um, a company called Platform Science that does um, telematics or operating systems for vehicles. Historically, that industry um, has needed to have black boxes put on with the software to enable it. This company was creating an operating system. The OEMs are now integrating. So when the cab is made, it will have the operating system on it. So over time, it will shift to more and more of a software only business. But because the industry where it is today, you need to have an asset component. I mean, a, a, yeah, an asset component of these black boxes to enable the software. Um, we incubated a company recently does computer vision. In that case, we can be agnostic to different cameras. We're not going to get in the business of making cameras, but we're still going to need to have camera infrastructure that we enable with the technology to empower the, the computer vision. Um, so it's something that I think because of the nature of our history of being an asset company, we have a, a very good understanding of asset businesses. Uh, our preference on the, 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 the venture side isn't to go in and, and create a, another Prologis, but it's how do we technology enable asset heavy businesses? Um, or how do we find software only companies that can be used by the employees of these companies? And as a final question, you had mentioned incubation, which is another yeah. part of the business that you're also working on. How are you, what are the differences in looking at opportunities from we're going to go out and invest in other technologies versus we're going to, we think there's an opportunity to leverage Prologist Inc. to incubate ideas on our own. How do you kind of analyze yeah. which way? Yeah, we usually start with a thesis and then we'll go out and there are some thesis like automation within warehouses this is an area we spent a lot of time and made investments. Um, I don't think Prologis will ever be in the business of making robots. Um, that's a pretty safe place that we should be investing in companies that are best in class and focused on doing that. But we have gone out at times and, and, and EV charging infrastructure is a great example that when we looked at the space, we could see there was a big opportunity because of the commitments that our customers were making and the fact they were pre-ordering trucks. And when we looked at three or four years ago, when we were first looking at the space, most of the companies out there were focused on passenger vehicles uh, and providing the EV charging infrastructure, which is a very different business model and very different type of expertise is needed. Um, and the more we looked, we couldn't really find what we were looking for with a company that was focused on EV fleets. So what we then started looking at is, okay, to make this successful, what's needed? What type of capabilities? And we realized probably 70 to 88% of it, we were already really good at. So putting in infrastructure, understanding building dynamics, working with utilities, getting permitting and approval, like how do you manage assets over an extended period of time? What we didn't have was the expertise specifically on EV charging. Um, and that 
we went out and decided to bring in hire and bring in a team that could do that. So we hired some great people who had already been in the space for a while, had built out capabilities and thoroughly understood the space. They looked at it as this is fantastic because the biggest barrier they were facing was access to real estate and access to sites. We had a ton of sites. Um, so for us, it made a lot of sense in that case, rather than trying to go, we, we had looked for a company, didn't find someone exactly that met our needs. But when we took a step back, we realized that, you know what, we could actually incubate something here because 70 to 80% is already aligned with what we're doing. Um, we've also recently incubated something around computer vision, as I mentioned earlier. In that case, we were looking for a specific use case that was so, could be solved. Um, we were trying to do it internally and realized we just didn't have the technical capabilities to do advanced computer vision. So we partnered with another VC firm, went out and found a team to incubate against this idea uh, of being able to track vehicles coming in and out of the warehouses. And there's a variety of reasons why there's value there. Um, but in that case, um, it was more that because we had a very clear thesis about what we were looking for, we were able to determine, okay, is this right for Pelagis to do? Is this right for an investment? Or we came up with this third option when we couldn't find something that exactly met our needs. Well, well, I just want to thank you so much for taking the time yeah. with us. Really, really enjoyed hearing all about Prologis and you personally. So just really want to thank you again. Yeah, my pleasure, Eric. This was, uh, it was great to chat with you. I'm glad, uh, glad you found it helpful today. All right. Awesome. Thanks, Will. Yeah, take care. Well, guys, I hope you enjoyed that conversation between Will and I. It's really interesting to hear about Will's time at Prologis and his founding of Prologis Ventures and how his role has shifted over the years. In terms of a final few takeaways, I just highlighted a couple of things from our conversation I thought were really good insights on his part. First, his he had one line where he was saying, by really focusing on things we knew, we had more to we had more time to focus on things we didn't know. I think that's really, really important, obviously, whatever you're doing, but especially as somebody who's looking to be a good, successful investor, you have to first look at what are the strengths in our investment thesis, in our understanding of the space, and by looking and by isolating the variables that you're not so strong, you can actually be much more effective in solving those problems. So I thought that was an interesting insight. And the other thing was, when Will was saying, you know, the supply chain is now viewed as something that's mission critical at the C-suite level. I think this is a great example of how an industry has, like the supply chain, has taken on a much greater importance as we've switched to e-commerce and customers are obviously expecting a wide variety of products and faster, more effective um, ease of consumption. So it was interesting to hear about Will's take on how the supply chain has kind of evolved and been prioritized over the years. And then finally, Will spent a lot of time, as he noted, in international markets. So I really liked how he was talking about the differentiators between each of the international markets that he had exposure in and how really understanding the complexity of each market is key to the success of doing well in all those markets. So that's all for today's episode. We have a bunch of episodes coming up in March though, so stay tuned for those.
All right. Thanks, guys.